man. Um, yeah, so this week, I think, has been both busy and not busy, um, in a sense, in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's been very interesting in how we've seen sort of somewhat of a stalemate, or not a stalemate per se, because the Russians obviously still somewhat have an advantage at this point. But we've seen... Um, sort of a slowing down of the action as um, Russian forces do something, either are working on resupplying or working on sort of repositioning and working to sort of sol- solidify their existing positions um, in the region. Uh, we've seen that sort of around Kiev over the past uh, week where Russian forces have mm-hmm. sort of, they're trying to encircle the city, but as a, um, as a U.S. official said today, and I'm, I'm going to, um, uh, requote, uh, I believe, uh, uh, Dan LeBoth on this, but um, uh, there was, uh, where is it here? Um, oh, Lord. Um, what was it you were looking for? Uh, yeah, just a, a certain quote, uh, basically just specifying from the Pentagon um, uh, that... All right, I cannot find this. Um, <laughs> all right, well, uh, okay. So I'll just say this on and quote myself on this, but um, I, I really do not think uh, at this point the Russians have a clear path to encircling Kiev because they haven't done it yet. Um, so they either have to fix their supply situation or gather more troops or, or do something to change that. Yeah, I mean, looking at... Like kind of the you know a lot. I mean, there's a lot of lot of people making maps at the moment. Um, you know, they all roughly say the same thing. You know, like you know, R- Russia trying to push on Kiev from like the north uh, west, and also now they're coming at them from the east. They seem to have kind of given up on not given up on taking Kharkiv and and that kind of region, but kind of started maybe pushing a lot more uh, westwards and kind of bypassing a lot of major cities and just trying to make another rush on Kiev. Um, which you know seems to have been halted, like you were saying. Like they, they haven't made a huge amount of ground um, in recent days. Uh, you know, they seem to be kind of stalled. Uh, is it? Um, I'm going to pronounce it horribly. Is it Irpin or Irpin? Um, where the New York Times journalist, whose name I'm unfortunately drawn a blank on, was killed uh, either yesterday or the day before. Um, but I believe that's where he was killed, shot at a, a checkpoint. Um, it seems like, yeah, they were trying to push in that direction. We've seen from both satellite imagery and imagery from the ground that, you know, Ukrainian forces have destroyed bridges leading over the river there. So that's obviously uh, slowed them down on that front. Um, and also, you know, we saw the USA and that, that huge 40-mile-long uh, convoy seems to have largely broken up now. Yeah, well, I, I think, as, as they said, broken up was the wrong word. Um, it, it's more redistributed, um, yeah, sort yeah. of, or, or it's gotten to operational positions. Um, I, I think the main thing we've seen at this point is that the Ukrainians have had the time sort of to coalesce around Irpin, around, you know, that the area around Buka, um, and, and sort of the, the bordering areas around Hostomel, which at this point I believe has been... Um, taken by Russian forces, but serves sort of as a reliable area where the front line is. Um, and they, they have sort of devoted a lot of their defensive capabilities near Kiev to that area. 
Um, we also saw one of the big advantages they had um, was uh, they flooded out a fairly sizable area of the Irpin River um, north of Kiev, which is sort of, I think I had posted a picture of it mm -hmm. um, a few days ago, but it's basically turned that entire area north of the city into a massive marsh um, that you can't really drive tanks over. You can't, you know, put bridging units over it because it's just a marsh at this point. Um, so that's serving as a, a fairly good anchor for them in the north. Um, and then, of course, we're seeing the defensive line sort of anchored on that river all the way down um, to the uh, meeting point of the Bukha River as well. And we have seen Russian forces sort of cross um, the Bukha River in a couple of points. Uh, most definitely at this point, we know they've crossed west of Irpin. Um, so they, mm -hmm. they, have a, um, they have a fairly solid hold, at least in that area. Um, so that, that serves as sort of a, a potential area where they may try to exploit um, the crossing they've already made. But we really haven't seen them um, sort of progress to take areas more towards the west and the southwest. So the Ukrainians have a fairly reliable supply line at this point. Um, heading into Kiev from the south and from the southwest. And we, we've seen them taking advantage of that um, for the past few weeks or past couple of weeks now just to funnel tr both troops and weapons into the city, um, which has made a lot of Russian progress extremely difficult. Um, and the main operational area we're seeing the Russians sort of, you know, at least be successful or they were successful and are now sort of solidifying their gains as additionally in the South. Um, the, the current uh, siege around Mariupol um, is of course still ongoing and um, uh, is fairly brutal from what we've seen. Um, uh, there's a lot of fighting in the city, which of course carries a lot of, um, you know, damage to civilian areas and, and causes a number of civilian casualties. No, 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 I mean, you know, we've seen a couple of videos from from Mariupol today, and there was the um, the drone footage, uh, which just showed like the sheer destruction of of the city, which is you know horrendous. Um, you know, it, it really did remind me of seeing some, you know, like very similar videos from you know Syria after you know the you know, destruction. It was just you know a lot of the city was just rubble. You know, apartment buildings had collapsed. It was just. Streets were covered in rubble. You know, it's it's really really heavy fighting there, um, and we got you know a sense of that as well. You know, I think as of um, you know for all their issues, uh, have been releasing a lot of uh, a lot of footage from from the fighting there. Um, and again, you know, the footage they released today of the um, the vehicle combat they were in. Um, I believe they were in a was it a BTR four Ukrainian BTR four. Um, and they were engaging a, a Russian T-72, and it looked like also a, a BMP as well, a very, very close range of BMP. I mean, I mean, it's difficult to tell from the camera, I suppose. I don't know what the magnification was, but it seemed very, very close range fighting um, in the streets there. So, yeah, the fighting in Mariupol looks absolutely brutal at the moment, and of course the people who are suffering the most are still the, uh, the civilians that are trapped there. Yeah, and, and the repeated collapse of any chance to uh, put together a civilian evacuation corridor has been... Um... Uh, particularly uh, damaging to the civilian population there, as we've seen um, both in Kiev, um, in Irpin, um, in Mariupol, uh, or, or even um, out of Kharkiv as well. Um, any chances for civilian evacuations have usually fallen apart within a few hours. Um, 
between, you know, just fighting, restarting or, or the evacuation areas getting shelled. Um, I, I do think the, um, uh, the New York Times uh, front page image um, showing the evacuees who had been killed um, uh, trying to evacuate from Erbin um, uh, was particularly telling um, to how dangerous and um, just horrifying it is for the civilian mm-hmm. population in that area. I, I think that's the best word at this point. No, definitely. And again, it's it's not even like it's isolated incidents of, of the civilian like, corridors being shelled. Um, you know, bringing it back to Syria, it, it, it happened countless times in Syria where, you know, the, the Assad regime with obviously Russia's support, they would offer these kind of humanitarian corridors and give them a, you know, a deadline of a few days for everyone to leave. Um, and then shelled these corridors, you know, just prevented anyone from actually leaving. And then, you know, when the deadline expired, bra- you know, blanket statement that anyone still in the city was obviously still a terrorist and still a fighter because, you know, the opportunity for civilians to leave had passed. Um, and, we, you know, we saw that happen a lot in Syria. Um, we saw it in Ukraine in 2014. Um, I believe it was... Uh, I can't remember the name of the city now off the top of my head. It wasn't Devil Sea, it was the other one. Um, which was it gonna... near Donetsk or uh, near to Luhansk? I can't remember exactly where it was. Um, and that's yeah, that's really gonna annoy me. Um, but yeah, there was a, a, Ukra- a city held by Ukraine that was surrounded. The soldiers were offered a corridor out, you know, if they you know laid down their arms, etc. etc. Um, and then whilst retreating, we're were shelled and you know hundreds killed in that instance. So it wasn't so much civilians, but that was you know a, a, a corridor offered to the soldiers to leave through, um, and then very quickly you know Russians uh, separatists they 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 broke the word almost immediately. Um, so it's you know it's almost a, a tactic at this point for Russia and you know Russian proxies to to kind of offer these corridors and then immediately attack the corridors if anyone takes them up on it. Um, to, to prevent, you know, to, to prevent people leaving, which is, I mean, there's no other word for it. It's just evil, isn't it? Yeah, I, I guess there's a certain point. And it may also uh, have to do with the lack of lower level control we've seen among mm-hmm. Russian units as well. Um, the Russians may not actually be able to sort of enforce a ceasefire on their own side. And, and that's something that we've seen um, historically as, as an issue um, with Russian forces is that sort of a lighter, lower-level officer corps. Um, I, I believe uh, I, I, um, I don't remember who said this, but it was it was a very um, good observation that the the Russians are are the orders are going from the high level to mid-level commanders, but they they aren't really getting down to that lower level as we're seeing. And the second you know they meet contact, things sort of you know fall apart into more of a, a chaotic scene. Um, we, I mean, we've seen that. Oh, hello? Oh, cut off there. Awesome. You still there? Oh, sorry. Did I? Did everyone lose me for a sec? Sorry about that. Yeah, you. Yeah, well, for me, you, for me, you went quiet for a little. Okay, sec. I'll I'll just restart there. But we we've sort of seen, you know, uh, when Russian forces meet initial contact, there may be a bit of chaos as they, you know, uh, disperse or regroup or, um, you know, move into fighting positions and and attempt to break contact uh, quickly, um, which is sort of impeded their ability to, you know, follow standard Russian doctrine of trying to exploit a, um, uh, an opening or, or a hole in the front line. 
Um, so it, we've seen that less um, with some of the more experienced units. I know I can pretty much automatically say that um, uh, first and fourth guards tank army um, have been extremely competent in what they're doing. I mean, they pushed across um, most of the north of the country um, and are now on the eastern suburbs of Kiev. Um, with, uh, I, mm -hmm. I think that was actually more uh, uh, fourth, or I, I think it was a combination of first and fourth, and I believe maybe 47th uh, tank army as well. Um, that's just based on the ISW map. But those are those are more experienced units, and we've seen them um, sort of move better across open terrain. They've exploited openings far more um, effectively than other units have. Um, and we'll sort of see how they do once they actually reach, you know, a more urban area. Um, and I think that is the other main thing I sort of wanted to talk about was the fact that we've actually seen sort of the Russians really not want to occupy urban areas, at least in the north. I mean, you've seen bypassing Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv, um, even, you know, the situation in Kiev. Uh, whenever Russian forces have sort of gotten into urban, more urban areas, things have fallen apart. Um, and mm. I think that comes down to a couple of issues, at least at this point, um, the Russian forces are very mechanized, um, and that is the nature of how they've had to move into the country. Um, of course, you're going to, you're going to have mechanized infantry forces. You're going to have armored forces, um, pushing in first. Um, and the problem is they'll get into more urban areas and they'll either be stuck in their vehicles um, or it'll be armored forces without much infantry support, which, again, in an urban area is not great. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a better term no. for that. Um, no, I was going to say well, what you're saying is, you know, yeah, they're definitely not they're trying to avoid large population centers where they can. Um, and you just have to look at Melitopol to see exactly why. You know, there's there's huge, huge protests on a daily basis against, you know, Ukrainian occupation there. Um, and, you know, luckily, you know, thank God at the moment it's been relatively peaceful. Um, I believe the mayor of the city was was uh, arrested by the Russians. Um, and that's what, you know, a, lot, a large amount of the protests recently have been focused around, you know, the release of the mayor. Um, but... Yeah, there was absolutely huge, huge protests, um, you know, anti-Russian uh, occupation protests in, in Melitopol. Um, and, you know, it's, it's compared to some of the cities, they, you know, they're trying to capture, you know, like Kharkiv, Mariupol, um, you know, Kiev, you know, it's it's still relatively minor. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's it's very lucky for Russia at the moment that things are peaceful because of, you know, if these, if these protests suddenly turn into more of an insurgency, um they're going to have, you know, real issues kind of holding on to these cities in the south. Um, you know, if they suddenly have to divert a lot of forces away from the actual offensive to, you know, putting down insurgencies on, you know, in their rear as well. So I think that's something which, whilst hasn't happened at the moment, um, could definitely go that way. Absolutely. You know, the way things are going. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what we've also seen um, in the south is the south, obviously, you know, uh, or at least in the southeast part of the country, um, it's more Russian speaking. Um, uh, there, there's just, there's a larger population that may be friendlier to Russian troops. Um, and you know, they had less time to sort of prepare and to sort of see the situation evolve, um, in the country. And we've still seen the number of protests we have. 
So those are the areas that would probably have, you know, the lowest quantity of protests in whole in the you know entire situation. And we're still seeing, you know, the Russians have to devote a number of troops to sort of containing, you know, the protests in these cities to sort of service occupation forces. Um, whereas in the north, I, I can't even imagine um, how ugly it would get in somewhere, you know, Kiev or uh, in Chernihiv, um, where the civilian population won't just be protesting, they'll be, you know, actually trying to fight back. Um, and that's something that's just very, very, very hard to deal with. Um, the U.S. didn't have to deal with that really in Afghanistan as much. Um, it was more fighting against armed groups more than just, you know, the civilians in any city. Um and, you know, you can even look at what happened to the U.S. just fighting small, mostly disparate armed forces. Um, it, it was ugly. And the number of troops that had to be devoted to sort of contain that was massive. Um, and I don't really think there's a chance that there is going to be a willing or a very stable occupational government um, if the Russians manage to take over Ukraine. Um, which at this point is still in question um, if they even manage to take Kiev. That's 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 an open question, I think, that still exists. Um, but any sort of occupational government wouldn't be stable in any way, shape or form. Um, they would be immediately beset from multiple sides by, you know, members of the population. Um, we already saw that with Maiden in 2014 um, and late 2013. Uh, it's just any government that was, you know, any puppet government by Russia, just it, it wouldn't be stable. No. And, and again, I, I think that all comes back down to, again, I don't know if Russia would just believe in their own propaganda a little bit too much about, you know, Ukraine being under the control of Nazis and these Ukrainian people who would, you know, be throwing roses on the road when the Russian tanks are rolling past in a, in a way, you know, they were fully expecting your complete capitulation within days, really, if you if you look at what you know what 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 the um you know there was like Russian uh, state media were had articles ready to post on you know the first weekend, didn't they? You know, they, maybe three four days into the invasion, they were they had they had uh, like victory articles ready to go. Um, oh, and there and there are some certainly there are certainly great quotes by um, some choice Twitter accounts. Um, who will remain unmentioned <laughs> at the point at this point. But, um, you know, it was very clear that the general, at least public, maybe even, you know, private or high level governmental opinion was the Ukrainians will fall in three days. We'll, you know, land paratroopers in Hostomel and they'll roll into, you know, the city and take Zelensky and we'll be able to put in a puppet government. It'll be 2014 all over again. Um, yeah. And again, I, that's the one thing I kind of didn't expect. Like, I, again, I had... I had, I never would have guessed how much of resistance Ukraine would have put up. You know, we're more than likely going to make it to three, you know, three weeks this week, or you know, since the invasion, and you know, Russia still not, um, you know, still haven't really made any major gains. Um, but I never would have said we would be at this stage three weeks ago. Um, you know, we're, you know, not a lot has changed <laughs> in terms of, you know, in terms of you know, Russia's invasion over the last two and a bit weeks, you know, they have, they've made a lot of really quick gains very, very quickly in the first two or three days. Um, I think as everyone expected, I mean, I think even in the first day they were in Kiev, right? Especially with the, uh, the helicopter landed in Hostomel. Um, so, you know, since that first day, 
and land in you know in hospital. They, they've really they've not pushed that much further towards Kiev. I mean, they 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 have you know, they got closer um, because they're in a, you know they they were they were they were layering you know a matter of hours on day one, and now we're you know two weeks in, and they've only gone another maybe five ten kilometers. Um, it's yeah, it really is surprising. Um, and yeah, I, I again, you know, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of rambling, but kind of going back to what my point is, like, I was fully expecting Ukrainians to fight. Um, I wasn't expecting them to kind of just lay down their arms and welcome the Russians, as a lot of people were suggesting. Um, but I don't think anyone was expecting exactly how well they've been fighting. Um, you know, I was expecting kind of like brave resistance for like a week or a few days, and then they to kind of just you know collapse, as I think most people would. Um, but I think you know they've surprised not just Russia, but I think they've surprised a lot of you know Western nations as well with just how well they're doing. Yeah, and the the lack, honestly, one of the biggest failures I think the Russians, or or at least in the Russian invasion, has been the failure to control the information. Mm-hmm. Um, in in Ukraine, I mean, the Ukrainian president um has been or is the entire Ukrainian government. Um, has been able to communicate to their citizens pretty much in every place in Ukraine reliably. We've had information coming out of Ukraine regularly and, and you, you know, in a, in a very concise manner. Um, pretty much all of the, the uh, media outlets in Ukraine, um, both on the governmental side and on um, the private side, have been able to broadcast a fairly, you know, a narrative that is very pro-government and it looks really good for the government. Um and and we're just we're the Russians have not been able to sort of shut that down. Um, videos are still coming from the front lines, um, or you know just behind the front. People, you know, even in Sumy or Chernihiv, where they've been under attack by the Russians for you know almost three weeks now, still have fairly reliable internet connection. You know, it's intermittent, but they still get it, and videos can still come out of there. Um, and so we're continuing to see this and it's basically just spent the last two or three weeks at this point reinforcing um the ukrainian narrative that you know they're a defending force they're you know they can win this the russians are taking massive casualties um it's just increased the amount of patriotism and you know potential resistance we'll see by a massive amount yeah and, and going on to the whole kind of patriotism and you know you know being under you know invaded by a foreign power um that kind of like leads me on to my point of the you know, the reports in the last couple of days that Russia is looking towards Syria to recruit from the Syrian army there um, to kind of maybe shore up their own forces in Ukraine a little bit, which you know normally I wouldn't you know normally these stories you know every time there's a a, a war you get these kind of reports that you know there's recruitment going on in Syria for one side or the other. Um, you know, I haven't spoken to like you know several reliable people in regards to Syria. It seems it's you know it's definitely happening. There's recruitment going on. I mean, Russia themselves have said you know they had what was it sixteen thousand willing soldiers in Syria or, or in the Middle East, I believe was the exact wording, um, willing to go to Ukraine. Um, and you know, if you think that people are you know are are, are you know angry now that they're being occupied by Russian troops. I mean, think about how angry these people are going to be if suddenly these Russian troops are replaced with Syrian troops, who, which we've seen over the last decade, aren't... Um, trying to think of a way to put it. They aren't as um, disciplined, should we say. You know, again, I, I bring it up a lot, but well, there's I a... I mean, they're, they're viewed as even more foreign than the Russians. I mean, the Russians... Oh, yeah, yeah. 
this appeal of, you know, a bunch of people in your country, you know, speak Russian and, and Ukrainian is pretty close to Russian and, you know, all the Soviet Union propaganda as well. Um, but you sort of lose that with uh, bringing in um, with bringing in troops from Syria or, or from, you know, I mean, we've heard rumors of Libya, but that's that's still unconfirmed at this point. Mm-hmm. Um but that aspect as well is is incredibly damaging to any narrative the Russians want to put together. Um, and on top of that, I mean, the, the presence of Chechens as well has um, given the Ukrainians a bit of a propaganda win. Um, yeah, no, exactly. And, and it, I was going to say, like, you know, whilst, you know, in, in the, uh, the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, in the last year or so, you know, Turkey recruited... Uh, you know, I can't remember the exact number, but it was hundreds of you know Syrian fighters to come fight on on the side of of Azerbaijan. Um, and you know, whilst ultimately Azerbaijan won the war, I think it done a lot of damage to them. I mean, not that they cared, you know, but it, a lot of damage to them in the public eye by recruiting these you know these Syrians who, you know, um, you know in Syria committed some you know the group the groups they were coming from were notorious for committing war crimes and um, you know just general horrible stuff you know to like the population in syria um and then obviously they came to um to fight in these other conflicts and you know there was some you know in the in the war there there was some horrific war crimes themselves you know the beheading of corpses and you know mutilation of corpses and the destruction of like religious symbols and stuff like that um and you know the syrian government you know their military there is it's it's you know it's one of the most brutal you know they've been fighting the civil war for the last decade um yeah, and it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that's actually uh, fairly interesting, um, at least that I've seen, is that uh, Russia, who's very careful about controlling the narrative around a lot of issues, they're very aggressive with state media and with, you know, a combination of, you know, bot campaigns, disinformation campaigns, and, and, a, and a number of other, frankly, um, very well put together um, media plans and, and um general you know propaganda plans to see them sort of put together something that is pretty careless at least when it comes to you know a pr perspective how much will syrian fighters help them um sort of from you know just a a, a propaganda perspective within ukraine um versus how much it's going to actually benefit them um from you know a practical war fighting capability perspective I really don't see how many Syrians they'd be able to, you know, move into the area and it, it would end up just causing them a number of issues. Um, we've, we've basically just seen this sort of loss of control, um, at least from the, you know, uh, media perspective and from a narrative perspective um, that I didn't mm-hmm. really expect to see, um, especially coming from Russia. No, I, I get it. It just seems... It just seems like desperation, doesn't it, from Russia's perspective? I mean, I, again, we, we still have no real idea what the official death toll are, is from Russia at the moment. Obviously, the Ukrainian government say one thing, which is you know wildly, wildly inflated. I believe they're claiming twelve or thirteen thousand. Um, I know the US. I think they they're saying it's close to the same number, but again, I I'm not sure I'm going to fully believe US estimates at the moment because they have the same benefit as as Ukraine do in, in kind of hyping up or overinflating, you know, Russian losses. Um, but it's definitely many, many times more than, than Russia were expecting or even, or even planning for. Um, 
and I'm wondering if that's now starting to have an effect domestically. Uh, we saw quite early on there was a, a clip of a uh, a low level Russian politician talking about the you know the the conscripts that were sent to Ukraine, and out of a group of two hundred, I believe only like ten or fifteen returned. You know the others have been killed, so you know like Russian losses are absolutely catastrophic in in at least it's on some of the fronts in Ukraine. Um, and you know, like what I'm thinking is obviously, you know, these these bodies are piling up, these coffins are going home. Um, from what I've heard from a lot of a lot of people living in Russia is, you know, like the um, you know, Russian military mothers of so they have a lot of power, like political power. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, you know, a lot of maybe some dissent starting to um starting to appear there. So I'm wondering if Russia is going to start maybe trying to replace some troops, some Russian troops with Syrian troops. Um, probably not on the front line. Again, probably to to you know, station in the cities that are already under Russian control to, to kind of put down any kind of protests or, or uprisings, um, and you know, free up more Russian troops on the front line. Um, but you know, again, like I said, that comes with its own set of issues. Both, you know, actually, you know, Syrian troops aren't known for being you know, elite or, or even competent, if you know, if we're being blunt about it. Um, I mean, they they are experienced, um, of course. Oh, experienced, they are, yeah. But... They are also very experienced in counterinsurgency operations as well, um, which I, I think the Russians may, that may be one of the attractive options for the Russians. Um, but at the same time, again, they're not going to be winning any hearts and minds of the Ukrainian people. They're They're going to be, you know, uh, they're going to be doing fairly violent things and they're going to be seen as even more uh, of an outside, um, uh, even more of an outside influence or even more of an outside player. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how that'll go over for the Russians, but I, I don't assume it'll be very good for them, at least in that, you know, aspect. No, I, I'm yeah, going oh, back. Oh, oh. Sorry. It obviously makes the fact that... Um, oh, your mic's messed up, man. You're... Yeah, your mic's oh, like a lot of static, a lot of interference on your mic there. Do you want to try unplugging it, plugging it back in, or I don't know what it was you were using? Technical difficulties, yeah. Um, I guess we'll just vamp until he can get back. But, um, I, I, I mean, I think we've seen a, a lot of these issues, and, and we will into the future. Um you know, I, I just I think the longer that the Russians fail to make major gains and the longer that they fail to take Kiev, um, the more well, one, the more the Ukrainian government will be able to put together a, a better defense of Kiev, the more they'll be able to get more weapons and supplies. We've seen um, Reza in Poland um, become just this massive hub of um, of defense, defensive munitions coming from a number of NATO countries um, and further abroad. But we're seeing that sort of being funneled into Ukraine right now. Um, Russia did say they would hit, you know, supply lines in, you know, Western Ukraine or, or wherever. But one of the main issues with that is, and I think I talked about this yesterday, but um, Russia doesn't have the best ability to project um, their power into that part of Ukraine. Um, in order to sort of hit those assets, they would need um, not just good you know isr capabilities in the area they would probably need assets on the ground 
they would need, you know, aircraft with precision guided munitions. Honestly, it, it would be legitimately something hard for even the U.S. to do to inter to interdict armed shipments like that, because the Ukrainians have gotten, you know, pretty good at concealing them, at transporting them in, you know, an efficient way um, into Kiev. And it's something that the Russians have had trouble already interdicting. And I don't think it'll change um, anytime in the near future. Yeah, and I, I don't think Russia would ever really attempt it. I mean, I, I don't obviously it wouldn't start a war between NATO and Russia. I don't think it would be, you know, it wouldn't be um, an Article Five situation if they did strike these shipments inside Ukraine. Um, but I just don't think it's 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 not worth worth the risk because it sets a dangerous kind of precedent if you suddenly start, you know, if Russia starts striking U.S. arms shipments to Ukraine. Like, you know, it, it opens up, you know, U.S. to do the same thing to Russia elsewhere, which at I, the moment... I think the implication was that they would hit said shipments after they had been transferred over to... Oh, know, okay. I, I think the way it's currently set up, and this is me, you know, completely unprofessional guessing. Um, so this is in no way, like, something that I actually have backed up with proof. Um, but it, the transfers are probably happening possibly inside Poland, um, maybe mm -hmm. at the border, but I, I do not think any NATO assets are traveling into Ukraine um, to take, you know, assets over the border. Um, so I, no. I, I think the, the main thing that Russia was sort of threatening was hitting the munitions provided by Western countries inside of Ukraine. And again, at this point, I don't think they really have the ability to do it. The strike on the former training base um, in Western Ukraine was more of a message than anything. And, and depending on the reports, um, a number of the, uh, the cruise missiles were shot down in the process, um, which is probably an indication that the Ukrainian air defense network is even more robust um, in that area than I think we thought it was previously. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, and that might be what the threat was. They might have been threatened to bomb the shipments, um, you know, when, when they're already in Ukraine and handed over, but that's, you know, it's not much of a threat at that point. I just feel like that would be sensible. No, striking, striking weapons, yeah, depots. Like, as, it, as it doesn't seem like it's really new, newsworthy. That's why I, the reason I thought it was, you know, the other way around, and maybe they're trying to actually, like, strike, um, you know, maybe when they were in transit. That's why I thought, you know, the, uh, the, the claim was, and obviously that would be a much, much bigger threat yeah um, i mean the russians have obviously made a, a number of threats probably more in private as well and more at the diplomatic level um which probably also somewhat contributed to the the lack of any uh, new mig-29s headed to uh ukraine yeah but, that was a really really weird annoying <laughs> a few days yeah. wasn't it that the whole mig-29 story that, uh, I mean, my opinion of that still sort of stands is that it wouldn't be exactly the most useful transfer, um, just because from what we've seen, the number of Ukrainian Air Force assets that have been actually destroyed, still pretty low. Um, and we still sort of, I mean, the Russians have a fairly robust air defense network. Um, the, the main risk to Russian aircraft is ground-based air defense, like man pads and, and other sort of short-range air defense um, mm -hmm. near the Ukrainian front that that we've seen has claimed a number of of uh, Russian aircraft um, we just saw today some uh, Russian pilot managed to uh, limp an Su-25 back to base with the, frankly extreme damage um, don't, mm -hmm. don't really know how he got it back but it, it got back um, but it, it's just it's a large danger 
um, for any Russian aircraft conducting sorties, and probably more so than the Ukrainians actually trying to interdict them with air assets. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you know, whilst the MiG-29 transfer would look great, yeah, I, I don't know how much use they'd get out of them again, because it seems, you know, like you said, that, you know, most of the Ukrainian current air force is, is still operational. Um, you know, maybe if they had pilots to come along with those MiG-29s and, you know, all the rest of it, then, then that would be very useful. But um, just the aircraft on their own, I guess, probably wouldn't be massively uh, beneficial. I think largely due to the part apparently um, part of you know the Ukrainian Air Force success is they just they're just moving around constantly. They're moving their jets, they're moving their helicopters, they're not leaving them in one place too long. Um, and obviously Ukraine being a huge country, um, Russia having real issues um, not only tracking them down, tracking down these aircraft, these assets, um, but when they do find them, you know they, they they're so spread out over so many air bases that they're only you know there's only a handful of, of assets at any one place at any one time by the looks of it. Um, so I think that's another, you know, huge reason why, you know, Russia is really struggling to, um, get a handle on the air force. Um, and, and also the, you know, the, the whole TB2 issue, which again, I, I can't believe how, <laughs> how effective that's been. Um, it seems, you know, every day or every other day we get another couple of videos of, of strikes on like on real, like high value targets, you know, air defense or, or, or you know, things of that nature. Um, yeah. I, I think the um, the current theory around why the TB2s have been so effective is that um, it, it's actually pretty hard for most modern radars that aren't, you know, very high frequency to um, identify a TB2 from other sorts of noise sources in the environment. And oh, okay. what previously, you know, if, if there was any sort of um, mechanism to sort of block out noise, um, from uh, a radar's integrated system, um, it might actually end up blocking a possible TBU-2 return because they're pretty small, they're composite, um, so they're stealthy in a way, not not in the common way. It's sort of like how a wood plane would be stealthy, um, mm-hmm. or a balsa wood plane would be in a, uh, somewhat stealthy. But um, you would sort of uh, have this uh, effect of, of, because it's, you know, it's low, slow, it, it doesn't present the normal air target, um, it, it may potentially somehow be avoiding um, being picked up by radar until it gets pretty close in, um, allowing them to conduct standoff strikes and, and you know, reconnaissance missions against Russian forces. Um, that yeah. still is a question that we probably won't get the answer to. Um, we've seen the Saudis have similar issues um, trying to interdict um, various drones coming from Yemen from Houthi forces. Um, especially with Patriots and the best counter for that we've seen has been the Saudis, you know, actually shooting them down with aircraft. Um, so I, yes, I think yeah. that, that may be an issue for Russia right now. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the you know, the one thing the Houthis don't have, which obviously allows Saudi to come in, you know, and shoot down these drones of aircraft is they don't have, I mean, for one, they don't have any aircraft of their own. And for two, their rear defense system is, is, is very, very, limited you know they only have a you know a handful of systems don't they um so obviously yes it's it's not as dangerous for the you know the saudi air force to come in and shoot down these drones whereas you know if russia was suddenly you know trying to come down a lot lower with their aircraft um and shooting down these tb2s obviously they're becoming more vulnerable themselves um yeah one thing I- we have seen um at least with uh 
with the situation more in um, in Libya that sort of displayed one of the weaknesses of the TB2 um, is that the claim is the Pantsir actually has a pretty good kill record on the TB2, um, which there may be a couple of reasons for that, but one of the primary sort of thoughts has been um, that uh, IR systems are a bit more effective um, than radar-based systems at obtaining a lock um, on something like a TB2. Um, I, again, a lot of this is based on information that we don't have access to and probably never will get access to. Um, but the one thing that we can say is that the TB2s have been incredibly effective. Yeah. No, and I, uh, I think we've seen one... Has one been shot down, maybe two in Ukraine? I think I've seen a photo of possibly one. I don't know if you've seen any more. Uh, I would have to double-check. I'm not sure. I personally haven't seen... Um, anything that was confirmed as uh, being downed at this point, so I, I'm not sure. Um, no, I feel like Russia would would jump on that immediately as a you know to try and get a propaganda win because they spent a lot of time uh, saying how useless the TB2 was and how ineffective it would be. You know, both, both you know the government and the uh, well, not so much the government, but definitely like the state media were, was talking you know about the TB2 a lot and saying it was ineffective. Um, but I think I think you know it's pretty obvious that the Russian government themselves were were a little worried about the TB two just by how uh, annoyed they were that you know the Turkey was selling them to Ukraine. Um, well, not not just selling, but delivering. You know, oh, delivery. Yeah, delivery of con- the last confirmed delivery that we had was I think. Um, let me double check here. Was March second? I think was the last actual confirmed delivery from Turkey to. Uh, uh, to um, Ukraine, so obviously Turkey is st- or Ukraine is still acquiring them, um, but it, it's it's a very threatening asset to uh, Russia. Mm-hmm. No, definitely, and it, you know it's, it's been very very successful in striking, um, like I said, like high value targets like like air defense and also um, you know the logistics convoys. Yeah, the artillery control station we saw destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was a. Again, it, it's mainly the high-value targets, like you said, that are getting um, uh, damaged. No, for sure. Um, which, which again, is is very much a, a great asset for the for the Ukrainians um, as they're able to sort of make up for potential uh, a lack of you know air force interdiction um, with more common fixed-wing jet aircraft um, versus you know actually going out with smaller drones and, and destroying targets. Uh, we, we saw, you know, piecemeal strikes by SU-24s and, and some other aircraft. But again, it, it's more the, the danger. The, the Russian air defense system is, is pretty good at shooting down, you know, large fixed wing targets, um, which, again, is, is one of the reasons why the Ukrainians have been less, you know, not it, it's not that they lack the capability at the moment. It's that they don't exactly want to lose most of their aircraft to, you know, Russian ground fire. Um, whereas the Russians are forced to more utilize their aircraft, um, which, you know, at, at this point, they are losing a number of aircraft. It, it did slow down, I think, last weekend mm-hmm. um, was pretty bad for them. Losing losing multiple SU-34s um, was definitely a sign that, that things had gone um, pretty badly. 
Um, and again, it, w- it was confirmed in, in video from Russian state media that, you know, the, SU-4, the, the SU-34s had been taking off with dumb bombs and most likely trying to, you know, conduct strikes in range of Ukrainian, you know, short range air defense, um, which is just it's it's highly dangerous to do something like that. Um, and shooting down, you know, fourth plus generation aircraft with, you know, a, 30 40 year old even even sometimes i mean if we're talking about 1970s era systems we're, we're talking about almost 50 year old systems here um mm-hmm. shooting down modern aircraft which it, it's just it's very very dangerous in the modern environment to have an aircraft with unguided munitions that's just something that you know if the russians had more smart munitions or had more precision precision guided munitions, they would just be able to, you know, sit up at cruising altitude and, you know, drop munitions on Ukrainian targets, but they can't. Um, if you've seen pretty much any of the videos released, um, there were a couple today um, from SU-25s, and they were, you know, flying very low, well within manpad range, um, conducting strikes on Ukrainian targets. And it's just, it's very risky. Um, to fly aircraft into an environment like that. And, you know, we, we've seen the Russian Air Force pay for that. Um, and so they, they probably will continue to limit their capabilities um, and sort of defer that down to, um, uh, uh, to the Russian artillery forces, which we've seen very active. Um, and there, there were some people who were talking about the fact that um, uh, Russian, the needs of the Russian artillery forces um, have actually strained um, the Russian supply lines uh, more than they were expecting, which I tend to agree with. Um, they've they've used a lot of rocket artillery munitions, cluster munitions, um, and other type of art, other types of artillery to really attack Ukrainian forces. Um, and the lack of uh, precision guided artillery munitions has has sort of hurt them in, in the number that they've needed to use to get the same effect. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, John, is your mic working? Do you want to give it a go, or is it still... If he's... Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, oh, that's much better. Yeah. Oh. That's better, is it? No, oh, no, no, yeah, no, you're never still, mind. You're still... <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, but it, it's just, it's it's... Again, the, the lack of combined joint fire support for the Russians have has really hurt them. Um, and, and I think, again, a lot of the Russian military is still built on sort of the older Soviet style of, of you know, we're going to have a war in Western Europe and we're going to use breakthrough forces. And, you know, it's going to we're going to use helicopters to you know transport forward troops, you know, and capture NATO assets. And, and I think that really doesn't work in the modern day battlefield. Um, where, you know, the importance of smart munitions and integrated fire support is just hugely important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I said, do you, want, do you want, should we touch on Iran or should we see if anyone's got any questions regarding Ukraine? Uh, I mean, there's not really much to talk about with Iran. I mean... They're up to their normal shenanigans. Like for, I mean, lack, it, a little bit more, term. Yeah, a little bit beyond normal. I'd say the you know ballistic missiles again, but it's completely up to you. We've we've I mean over the past you know four or five years we've seen a number of those attacks. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, coming from Iran. I think it's this was like the fifth now um, that Iran has utilized, you know, short range ballistic missiles or, you know, other types of missiles from Iranian territory to strike targets in Iraq. I mean, they, they did not target U.S. assets. They targeted, you know, what they claim was, you know, Mossad assets in revenge for um, the the Israeli strike that killed a couple of IRGC uh, officers. But I, I, I do not really think that um, I mean, I, I, I genuinely don't really think they hit anything. It was more of a message more than anything. Um, yeah. At, at this point, you know, I, I think, you know, the deal is probably going to go through whatever the JCPOA V2 looks like, um, mostly because, again, at, at the moment, uh, the U.S. kind of needs that oil supply. Um Though the, the oil market has stabilized a lot since the Russian invasion, but um, it, it's something that we're really going to see moving into the future, um, whether or not, you know, Iran decides to keep um, making these attacks on Iraqi territory, um, if we're going to see more Iranian involvement, um, either through uh, PMUs or the, the Iranian militias inside Iraq. Um, the, it really is a question of what that looks like if there is a deal. Um yeah, and, and well, it, it's it's mainly a wait and see issue because it, it, I'm not saying that it's kind of an unnecessary conflict at this point, but um, it, it's I think the war in Ukraine has sort of contextualized some of these issues into you know something that I don't think the U.S. exactly wants to fight or Iran doesn't necessarily want to fight at this point. Um, just. I, I really think, again, the conflict in Ukraine has very much contextualized a lot of other conflicts around the world. Um, yeah, no, definitely. It, it, was, it was just, uh, you know, really, really bad timing. Iran was about to start acting up again, obviously, in the middle of in the middle of Ukraine. Um, and again, it, it was. Again, like I said, it was almost certainly a retaliation for the two IRGC operatives that were killed in Syria um, last week. Although I did see, wasn't wasn't the Israeli assessment that that wasn't the response for that? That they still expected an actual response, and that the, well, the, the we, missile. I mean, we haven't seen one, so that's partially, you know, the reality of the situation. So who knows? Um, I, I, we really haven't seen a response yet, um, and. I don't think at this point, I mean, it's, it's been a week now since it happened. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, we saw a cyber attack today against Israeli government uh, assets. I, sorry, John just uh, might've uh, DM'd me in all caps. Saying <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cyber attacks. So um, that, that might be a response, but it, it's less kinetic than I think the Israelis were expecting. Mm-hmm. Um I, again, it, it's more one of these, there are a lot of wait and see issues that we have right now. And Iran, the situation in Iraq with Iran and, and the situation with Israel really got put on the back burner um, with the importance of what's happening in Ukraine. Um, and, and honestly, I think a lot of governments have taken that view as well of, you know, we need to wait and see what happens. Obviously, there's still active negotiations going on um, between all parties, um, for, you know, again, whatever JCPOA V2 looks like. Um, and we might see more movement on that this week. Um, but it, again, things were contextualized over the past few weeks. And I don't think that, um, I, I really don't think that Iran's going to continue or 
escalate in any sort of way. And I don't think the U.S. is going to voluntarily escalate. It's when people were saying that the U.S. was going to, you know, bomb Tehran. Um, oh, yeah, was, yeah. That was just that that was that was a ridiculous assessment of the situation. Yeah, um, I mean, and, if it didn't happen after the, uh, the ballistic missile attack after the Soleimani killing, um, I mean, it wasn't going to happen, you know, in, in, in that one. Um and you know, for for the U.S. to bomb Tehran or even just bomb Iran in response to the, to a Iranian attack, there's going to have to be there have to be U.S. casualties for a start. You know, U.S. Um, either U.S. troops or U.S. you know citizens are going to have to be you know killed um, to kind of trigger any kind of any response even similar to a strike directly against Iran. Uh, and even in that case, you know, we saw a. Um, uh, contractors, haven't we? We've seen contractors uh, like wounded, and I think there was contractor killed as well um, in the last round of escalations. Um, and and you know there was no strike against against Iran then. Um, you know lots of strikes inside Iraq. Uh, you know unfortunately, you know Iraq is currently the kind of battleground between the US and Israel and, and Iran. There, you know all the fighting's happening there and also in Syria. Um, but yeah, it, it would have to be a, a huge, huge. Uh, escalation for the US to even consider strike or even Israel to consider striking um Iran as things stand. Yeah. And of course everything when it comes to the nuclear side of things in that situation, um both the US and especially Israel has the choice of escalation. Um where they could effectively do it at any time. And I think we've talked about this a number of times on the podcast where again Israel will not let Iran acquire nuclear weapons and mm-hmm. they will, you know, they will deal with that when they get to it. Um, yeah. They've obviously, they've spent money preparing for it. They've attempted um, to get better tankers from the U.S., which has been not stonewalled, but not stonewalled or delayed, but it, it had the request to accelerate the deal was um, not accepted. Uh, so, but that was mainly a Boeing problem from what I've heard. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens sort of with that situation. Um, but the Israelis sort of have control over escalation in that, in that regard. Um, so that's, that's something to see in the future. I don't, I really don't think anyone has the appetite for escalation at the moment though. No, no. Um, and, and to tie this the whole thing back into into Ukraine, um, as well as what I'm saying, which you know is something I was discussing the other day with regards to the the reports that you know Russia is recruiting Syrians to to go to Ukraine. Um, again, again at the moment, I think it's only in small numbers, but um, again, I think again, you know, I said like Putin himself alluded to you know thousands, you know, over ten thousand troops, you know, that they were suggesting might be sent to Ukraine. Uh, and in it, you know, if that does happen, if you know the numbers are sent from Syria and any kind of, you know, in the thousands, um, depending where they're taken from, that's obviously going to weaken, uh, it's, it's going to weaken the Syrian government's position w- within the country. So whether they now, whether they get weakened um, in the fight against ISIS out in, you know, in the in the desert to the east, or whether they get weakened on the, on the Idlib or the Aleppo fronts, um, someone's going to take advantage of that. Uh, and obviously, you know, like Turkey and Russia are, you know, Always have a bit of a frosty relationship, you know, disregarding the, uh, the, the you know, Turkey's in NATO, even without Turkey being in NATO, you know, they have a, a, a difficult relationship, should we say, in regards to Syria. Um, you know, I would not at all be surprised to see, you know, like Tur- either Turkish back groups or, or um, you know, like HTS themselves, uh, 
you know, take the initiative and launch an offensive inside Syria if they feel like the Syrian government is weak. Um, and I believe, you know, uh, people, you know, especially like Woofers, who's, who's, whose main focus is Syria, has mentioned that the Russian Air Force has been um, next to non-existent line over Aleppo and Lidlid since the Ukrainian invasion. So obviously the war in Ukraine is having an effect on the war in Syria in that they've maybe having to ramp down operations late just to, you know, focus on, on Ukraine a little bit. Um, yeah, we, we did see some joint patrols between the Turkish uh, uh, forces um, in Syria and the Russians. So that that was something we did see um, mm-hmm. right after the start of the invasion, um, which definitely it, it was an interesting contrast to seeing TV2 um, going after um, Russian forces inside Ukraine. while Russian forces painted with the Z mark um, were patrolling around with Turkish forces in uh, northern Syria. Um yeah. So uh, we, we have seen a ramp down of operations. Um, people are unsure. Uh, a number of Rapucha class landing ships uh, visited uh, Tartus, um, picked up. No one really knows what they picked up and then went over um, to uh, Crimea. Um, so there are rumors that assets were moved around um, and things were shuffled. Uh, but there's there's no clear uh, evidence and the ships are still sort of now just waiting around. Um, near Crimea, waiting potentially to do an amphibious landing, but no one, no one is sure of that at the moment, just because it's um, it's very unclear uh, what the Russian plans for Odessa are. Yeah, and again, I think the whole plans were an amphibious landing. Just to touch on that, I think um, they were expecting to do it on a bunch of uncontested beaches, like they were almost expected to do it as a propaganda piece you know they were going to take the cities they were going to you know roll over ukraine very quickly you know everyone's going to surrender and then they can get some nice shots of an amphibious landing for for propaganda purposes um you know it, it seems that russian ships have been very hesitant to come anywhere near the ukrainian coast that isn't russian controlled as things stand um there was the rumors slash claim that a russian ship got struck by uh, Ukrainian missiles um, a few days ago. I know they said it was sunk, but I've seen no evidence of that. Always seen with some kind of grainy photos of like smoke on a horizon. Um, but it seems like something was hit and Ukraine claimed it was a Russian ship. Um, I mean, you know, Ukraine, you know, obviously their, uh, their anti-ship capabilities haven't been really tested as things stand because there hasn't been a real attempt Um Made and and you know I believe you I think the U.S. even claimed that what had happened an amphibious landing but again I don't think there was no evidence released they just kind of said it happened um, I feel like we would have seen at least a couple of photos or a video of something like that of that you know <laughs> had happened um, on the yeah, coast you can I think you can summarize pretty much the entire situation in Ukraine by you know sources have disputed this or sources yeah. Sources do not, you know, share the same information on this. Um, it's definitely something we have seen. We, we have seen inconsistencies between, you know, what are normally very highly reliable sources. Um, and, and trying to sort through that is uh, very hard. I, it's, it's difficult. Um, yeah, and I, it is difficult. A lot of the excellent sources um, on, you know, on this war are Ukrainian themselves. So obviously, you know, they understandably you know emotions 
uh, run high when reporting on a war against your own country. So, you know, you see a lot of people who, again, do excellent, excellent journalism. And then, you know, they will, you know, tweet something about the ghost of Kiev again. And you're like, oh, come on. You know, it, it's it's obviously propaganda. You know, one guy hasn't shot down 70 jets, as I think the, <laughs> the claim was at the moment. Um yeah. And it's or maybe not one guy, but I think you know Ukraine are claiming you know they've shot down seventy jets and ninety helicopters, and it's you know it's 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 not it's not you know based in reality, is it? Yeah. Um, but uh, and then at the same time, though, we see the Russian government come out a few days into the invasion and admit that they've taken over two thousand casualties, you know, five hundred wounded, you know, sixteen or sorry, five hundred dead, sixteen hundred wounded. And then, yeah. then the Ukrainian claims, you know, aren't like ridiculous and they're definitely not off by a factor of 10 at that time. So it's really hard to figure out a lot of this stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, if we had counterclaims from the Russians over a lot of things, it would be easier to or I'm assuming easier to split the difference a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 very difficult at the moment to try to, you know, kind of figure that out or, or sort through a lot of the conflicting information that we're getting. No, um, and people like Oryx obviously are doing fantastic work um, in terms of tracking losses on both Russian and Ukrainian side. Yeah, if, um, if there's one person to trust on like baseline numbers, it's Oryx. Like, yeah, and- absolutely. Um, but again, still don't have evidence of a couple of IL-76s shot down. Didn't. No, and they, they're big planes, you know, they would be, there would be some wreckage somewhere. Um, yeah. and it, you know, it can't even really be explained as, oh, maybe they, they crashed in Belarus or they crashed in Russia. Um, because even when that's happened, I believe there was a, was it an SU-24 or maybe an SU-25 that got shot down over Ukraine and land and crash landed in Belarus. Um, photos of that came out very, very quickly. Uh, speaking of IL-76, I'm just had a look on flight radar. We've got one recently taken off from Minsk and just headed into Russia. So, uh, the, not the sure. regular supplies or troops or yeah, probably, uh, probably aviation supplies because I I know um, the Russians are offer operating some of their uh, heavier assets out of. I am forgetting the name of the airbase right outside of Minsk, but um, that's that's one of the bases they've been using. Oh um, yeah, yeah. But again, at this point, I mean, we're we're seeing the Russians run into things that I think people had kind of postulated as a possibility at the beginning of the invasion, um, mm-hmm. like supply issues. And, you know, is 200,000 troops or, you know, is that enough troops to actually occupy Ukraine? Yeah, not really. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, how long do the Russians expect to fight this for? You know, will the Russian economy survive heavy sanctions? Um, and I think a lot of those things are um, or remain unanswered. Um, and I, I don't think the Russian high command had answers for them either. Um, I, due to certain, you know, operational actions they've taken, particularly the the airborne landing um, uh, uh, near Ke- or correction, the repeated attempts at airborne landings at um, Hostomel. Um yeah, it sort of gave us that indication that there was there was a lot of planning to win the war in three days. Yeah, there was I, I, a lot of planning after that. <laughs> um, yeah, in, in terms of you know, we said how long they expected to fight the war. I believe there was, um, again, you have to be skeptical. Take it with a couple of a pinch of salt. You know, anytime you know, there's a claim that documents have been found on a killed soldier or whatever. But there was, 
I believe, you know, those documents that were found on, again, a killed Russian soldier, which suggested um, a kind of a 15-day roadmap, right, of the invasion and, you know, winning of the war in Ukraine. So I, I believe that had, you know, that, that had plans of up until 15 days. Um and you know, okay, let's just for a second, you know, let's just assume that it was a you know an actual legitimate document. Fifteen days would have put us until Friday, um, or day fifteen itself would have been, I think, the actual the first day. Um, but yeah, so day fifteen would have been Friday. Um, we're now on Monday, so I mean, it, it does. Know, seem- we're day eighteen. We're in day eighteen. Um, so you know, if that document is legit, we're, we're seventy-two hours past where Russia expected the war to be over by um i think one of the other things is after day five we really have not seen much russian or many russian concentrated offensives of where they have built up combat power and then attempted to make a push really mm-hmm. haven't seen the last like two weeks now um which is definitely a sign that the russians they're not vamping necessarily they're they're not making it up as they go along but there is an indication that they aren't entirely um, prepared or, or had the operational you know, preparations to actually start doing things. Um, so we, we may see or, or what may be happening is things may be happening in the background. Um, the Russians may be sort of uh, reassessing their current situation and trying to you know, figure out how to salvage this operation. Um, into into something that they can you know actually turn into you know a victory. Um, I mean, at this point, they, they have the capability to do that they they have definitely have air superiority in the north, um, though their limited supplies of precision guided munitions are are causing them a lot of trouble. Um, we've seen them sort of take a lot of advantage uh, in the south. Um, where, you know, their, their especially VDV heavy units have been able to actually capture some cities um, like Kyrgyzstan, um, uh, like Melitopol. Yep. Um, so they, they've actually made progress in, in, in that manner. Um, yeah, they've been very so- successful in the south. I mean, for all the issues they have in the north, um, the south, they seem they've had very little um, well, you know, I mean, issues it- like that. In fairness, in the south, by day two, they were basically just able to do, you know, drive columns on the road. Um, oh, yeah, they, they were pretty much at Kirsten, right? The Kirsten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, yeah, I mean, they were basically just doing a road march at that point. Um, so uh, one of the main advantages of that is the Ukrainian defenses were not really in place in the south. Um, and, and the south was just easy to uh, travel around. I mean, it, it's flat. There, there isn't the mud issue that there is in the north. Um, and so it was, it was pretty easy for the Russians to push fairly far, fairly fast. But over the last like few days, um, we haven't really seen much movement, um, especially towards Odessa, especially, you know, breaking out over the Dnieper. Um, we've, we've seen, a, we've seen fighting around uh, Mariupol, but really apart from that, that's, mainly where the the bulk of the fighting in the south is right now um so we we saw them start quickly but they've sort of lost some of that you know offensive momentum over the past uh at least two weeks now frankly yeah and i suppose like the main thing is okay although the offensives um seem to have stalled a little bit um they're definitely not being pushed back either uh at least not in any kind of not in you know any kind of huge numbers um, it's you yeah. know they're um, 
you know, we get the occasional report that, you know, maybe a couple of villages have been retaken by Ukraine or they've, you know, they've, they've regained some territory in, in X, Y, Z or, or whatever. Um, you, you know, Ukraine are doing like a really good job of holding the, you know, holding the line now. Um, but the areas which they lost, you know, in the first couple of days, you know, where they lost a lot of territory very quickly, um, you know, they haven't been able to regain any of that. And, and that, that's going to be the main thing for Russia at the moment is they they still occupy a large area of Ukraine. Um, Not you a know, lot of urban area, though. It, it's no, a lot of, no. a lot of empty space that they've taken. Yeah, um, so a large area in the south. Um, and they, they really haven't gained a lot in the Donbass, which obviously, <laughs> you know, was... was uh, they claimed whole point of this offensive was, you know, that Russians have been genocided in Donbass and yada yada yada. Um, and obviously, they recognised the, uh, you know, the, the republics of Donetsk and Luhansk republics. Um, how long before the invasion? Twenty four hours, forty eight hours, very very about forty eight. Um... Yeah, and then it was the peacekeepers, which very quickly turned into whatever the opposite of peacekeepers are. Um, but yeah, they, they really haven't gained a lot of ground in the Donbass region, which yeah, well, is that, going to be an issue. Saw, that was where we saw a concentration of Ukrainian forces before the conflict even started. And um, the most battle-hardened troops, obviously. They've been, you know, they, they might have been not fighting like a, a, a very quick-moving war, but they, they have been at war for the last eight years you know, yeah. in, in that I mean, region. I, I, I think the main thing for them, at least right now, is the fact that they failed to take Kiev. Um, they they mm-hmm. do not hold the center of governmental you know power in they don't um, which is you know they can't install a puppet government they can't yeah. really they, they can't do anything right now to actually affect the Ukrainian government which is a huge issue for them at the moment um, yeah I mean they only have like the one regional city isn't it which is Kherson or Kherson um, yeah they they took Kherson. Um, and that the the more important thing about that was obtaining a crossing over the Dnieper. Um, yeah. So it, it's it, at at this point, I, I I do think the Russians will try to focus on taking Kiev. That is their main mm-hmm. objective. Taking yeah. Mariupol as well is going to be a huge thing for them, um, just because that's that's a more of a that's that that's a thing for the rebel uh, or the separatist territory. That's a that's a very important city for them. Um, yes. And so at, at this point, we're we're probably going to uh, we're we're going to see those at, continue to be the main two focus areas. Um, and, and I think some other uh, people had commented on uh, the fact that the Russians have also turned to uh, destroying strategic uh, military targets inside of uh, Ukraine, especially defense manufacturing targets. Um, so, you know, we saw the plant that makes MiG-29 engines or, you know, both produces and repairs them, uh, destroyed. Um, and I think we'll continue to see targets like that, um, uh, as part of, you know, the Russian demilitarization, uh, effort. Um, though at, at this point, I mean, that, that is, that, that's a, that's a secondary goal to, you know, actually controlling territory within, uh, Within Kiev, or within Ukraine, more specifically Kiev. Okay, I think I think yeah. George wants to talk. Cool. Does he? No. Okay. Um. Yeah, but I, I, at this point, I, I I think that's one of the um. 
that's that's one of the main goals and they haven't been able to do it and the longer they wait i think it's the harder it's going to get for them yeah yeah for sure all right it's been an hour and 15 minutes i think that's that's (laughs) the usual episode length right we don't have we don't have john in the corner uh this episode to sort of yell at us when we should uh wind things down um so, I, I mean, at this point, I think we can pretty much solidly say the Russians, it's, they haven't lost, obviously. They, no. they, it, they still have a path to victory. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do believe that involves taking and controlling Kiev. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the overall, I think, uh, intention at this point. Um, you know, and to solidify their holdings where, you know, maybe they can continue to control the Crimean Canal um, in order to provide a solid water supply to Crimea. Um, but at, at this point, they are going to be very hard-pressed to do that. Um, and it's, it's you know, it, it's something that they're going to take a lot of losses doing. And that's going to put internal pressure on Russia, um, especially as their economy continues to uh, do a bit of a downward slide. Um, yes. As of sanctions. Um yeah, and and I think I think Western governments have frankly handled this entire situation fairly well. Um, the MiG twenty nine debacle was more of a communication issue than anything. Um, I I do frankly believe that um, if things had been quieter, it would have gotten done. But apart from that, you know, it's better when things are done in secrecy, at least for this. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's where we sort of currently stand, um, the, the continued Russian focus in the south and around Kiev will be a main uh, characterizing factor over the next week. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, again, I, again, just yeah, to wrap things up, I think, yeah, definitely, um, I obviously want to take Kiev. I don't know, will that end the war, <laughs> you know, taking Kiev? Um, maybe. Maybe not. Um, very difficult to say. War, but it'll certainly make it easier for the Russians to claim that they won. Yes. No, absolutely. Which is, I, I think, something that Putin really wants at this point. Yeah. Yeah. No, they need something to present back home, right? You know, they, they don't really have anything at the moment. You know, the Russian people aren't going to be, you know, landed over. You know, Kyrgyzstan and and um, Melitopol, uh, You know, they, they're not major cities, and, and and for one thing, they're on the opposite end of Ukraine to you know the Russian border. They probably have a you know they don't have they probably don't have as much in common, um, you know, with with the Russian people as people maybe in Kharkiv or or Kiev. So they're well, going to want area is still somewhat Russian speaking, but yeah, oh yeah, the Russian they're speaking, more, they're yeah, more pissed, they're more pissed than anything else, which. Is not something I think the Russians wanted. No, and and there was the um, the mayor of Odessa, who, um, from what I was reading, is kind of largely seen as as quite pro-Russian, or maybe not as anti-Russian as maybe a lot of other Ukrainian mayors. Um, and he's he's fully on the you know the anti-Russia bandwagon now. He you know he he so he had uh, quite a long rant about um, after some missiles hit Odessa, he was. Well, very, very unhappy, should we say, unsurprisingly. Um, yeah. So, you know, e- even people inside Ukraine who were maybe prior to the war, maybe, you know, more sympathetic towards Russia and had, you know, maybe more 
you know, feeling a lot, maybe a little bit closer towards Russia. Um, a lot of that goodwill is very rapidly disappearing amongst, you know, ordinary Ukrainians, I think. Yeah. And, and I think, again, that's one of the greatest losses of for Russia during this invasion is the complete galvanization of Ukrainian resistance um, to sort of Russian influence at this point. I, I don't think that's something that will change um, for a while. And from the Ukrainians I have talked to, um, even the ones who were, you know, on the fence before the invasion, um, they are very, very solidly against Russia right now. And, and I think will continue to be into the future. Um, which is which is a major loss for Russia, especially in mm-hmm. the eastern areas and uh, the areas that are closer to Russia that are were still primarily Russian speaking or heavily Russian speaking. Um, losing a lot of those people as potential assets is it's going to hurt them long term um, with any of their you know any of their intentions with uh, Ukraine or, or any of their aspirations. No, absolutely. And I think we're actually going to sort of end this episode here. I, I don't know if uh, John is still live on his end, but um, it, it was it was great having all of you. Uh, thank you for listening to this live. I think we peaked at like what twelve hundred and fifty people. Um, wow, that was it was it was definitely nice to have all of you listening. Um, we're going to try to continue to do this um, for the rest of the season. It actually worked surprisingly well. I'll probably come with more notes next time. Um, but yeah, this is this is definitely something that we're going to uh, continue to do into the future. <laughs> <laughs>